Welcome to Evangel Church Online, a safe place for everyone to explore faith in Jesus. And today, we discover the importance of an eternal perspective. Welcome, my name is Lucas. I'm one of the pastors here at Evangel Church in beautiful Powell River, British Columbia. And we are so glad that you're hanging out with us today. Um, I don't know about you, but one of my favorite authors in terms of allegorical writing would be C.S. Lewis. Uh, he's a master of it. And of course, kind of his greatest work in terms of a series was his Narnia series. And the first book in that was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, I say the first book because that was the first book published in 1950. Uh, in the chronology, uh, The Magician's Nephew is really the first book uh, within the chronology, but it's more of a prequel. It came out five years later, just in case you're trying to fact check me. I know diehard fans uh, like to have um, <laughs> specifics laid out pretty good. Um, but I love that book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's a story of uh, Peter and Susan, Edmund and Lucy, they discover this magic wardrobe, which brings them into this world called Narnia. Now, when they enter that world, it's kind of in the moment of <clears throat> a cold and uh, unrelenting winter. And there's this kind of character who rules the land and her name is Jadis, the White Witch. Now, spoiler alert, uh, there's gonna be a few spoilers here, but if you haven't read it yet, it's been 72 years, guys, so um, I feel at this point it's kind of just public knowledge. But Aslan comes along and he's this lion and he's this representation of a Messiah figure, a Jesus Christ kind of figure. And when he enters the scene, we begin to see something happen with the seasons. We begin to see new life kind of springing up within the barren landscape of this winter landscape that C.S. Lewis kind of draws out for us. But this is kind of the moment that I want to emphasize and I want to focus on because as we jump into our series in John today, we're going to discover that the Jews had this very specific idea of the world. Two different eras. One, the era of now and the era of yet to come. And in this moment, Aslan, as he's introduced to the world of Narnia, we see signs of life begin to appear. But the story kind of reaches this climax when Aslan gives his life for the sake of all of Narnia. Uh, you can see kind of the similarities here. And it's kind of this visceral moment, these dark forces around this altar and, and Aslan is sacrificed for the sake of all of Narnia. But after this, the altar's broken, Aslan is resurrected and Winter gives way to a beautiful spring and then to summer. And the new era has kind of arrived. Winter's now over and spring and summer have taken precedence. It's this beautiful kind of reflection and allegory of what the Jewish people understood to be the case in the first century as they were looking towards a Messiah. William Barclay, he writes this. Here, Jesus is looking beyond the present to the age, to the new age which is to come. When he does, he uses a conception deeply rooted in Jewish thought. The Jews believe that all time was divided into two ages, the present age and the age to come. The present age was wholly bad and wholly under condemnation, and the age to come was the golden age of God. 
in between the two ages preceding the coming of the Messiah, who would bring in the new age, there lay the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord was to be a terrible day, when the world would be shattered into fragments, fragments before the golden age would dawn. The Jews were in the habit of calling that terrible between time the birth travail of the days of the Messiah. So kind of as we dive into this passage, I want you to kind of be reminded of this kind of picture of two ages. But here's what's so interesting, because the Jewish thought of the first century was this idea of these two ages and in the in-between the Messiah was going to come and there was going to be like a broken, fragmented moment for the world, right? This, this idea of this upheaval and this changing of the guard and there's going to be kind of just a shattering of everything in the world. But here's what's so interesting. Instead of the world being shattered, though it was changed forever, Jesus himself takes on in his broken body, the shattering and the fragmentation. And it's so interesting because this is going to serve as a stumbling block for many. And in that act, the, the cold of an everlasting winter has given way to this new season. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 16, verse 16. John 16, 16. If you need a Bible, visit myevangel.church forward slash Bible. We would love to get a Bible into your hands right now so you can follow along. So here we go, John 16, 16. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We, we do not know what he is talking about. And Jesus knew they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will see, not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you will sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive for your joy may be full. So Lord, we pray as we enter into your word today, that you would just lead and guide us by your spirit. That you would give us a revelation of truth that would change us from the inside out for the sake of not just our own selves, but the sake of our families and the community around us. In Jesus' name, amen. So like the disciples here, we kind of have to ask the question, what is Jesus kind of referencing here? What is he talking about? Well, he's, he's referring to what's about to happen. He's referring to his death, his burial, and then his resurrection. And he describes it in a way that some of us can kind of theoretically understand. And, and those of you who have gone through childbirth can understand in a much greater degree. But I love the imagery here. 
Yes, the day of the Lord is going to be dark and a painful day, both for the followers of Jesus, but also Jesus himself. And we know that the scriptures describe what Jesus went through physically, but I believe the greatest pain that he suffered was really the pain of being separated from the Father as sin was laid upon him. So, so why did he do it? The writer of Hebrews, he kind of writes this, and it's such a, it's profound, but it's also a little confusing when you kind of think of it. It's so counterintuitive. In Hebrews 12, 2, the writer of Hebrews says, Who for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And this is such an interesting concept, the joy set before him. This picture of childbirth, it describes it kind of perfectly, the sorrow of anticipation. I can only imagine, right? I can only imagine. But there's this kind of anticipation of the pain, of the, of the suffering, really, of walking through labor and going through that pain. But then it is dwarfed, it's kind of recessed, it's kind of put into the back of everything as soon as you're holding that newborn baby in your arms. And when you hold that newborn, you know, baby, that pain and all of that suffering, that was the joy set before you. That was the end game. That was what caused that mother to walk and journey through that moment in order to then hold that new life. And again, Jesus is recorded by John and he's kind of saying this over and over and over again. It's the eternal perspective that we need that will keep us going, that will keep us motivated even when the seasons are hard, even when we have to walk through some kind of pain, it's the joy set before us. It's an eternal perspective. It's seeing a revelation of what's to come that keeps us going. This life is so temporary and we, we live it in a way in the day-to-day -day as though it's everything and it's, and it's not. And that's what the writer John, as he's describing Jesus' life and teachings, he's pulling out this eternal perspective, the importance of seeing this life in the proper perspective. The humanity of Jesus stayed laser focused on the outcome in order to endure the journey to the cross. But then D.A. Carson, he, he writes this um, perspective here of this moment. The disciples still have no category to allow them to make sense of a Messiah who would die, rise from the dead, and abandon his people in favor of another counselor. So remember, the Jewish thought of the time, two eras, very much so that the Messiah was going to come and serve as more of a geopolitical leader that would establish Israel as the preeminent nation of the world. And so this was kind of the idea. The golden age was going to be this kind of social reform, geopolitical moment. And yet, the, when Jesus begins to talk about dying, when he begins to talk about sacrificing himself for the sake of the world, when he, when he, there's, there's no filter for the first century disciple here. They don't understand what he's trying to say. And this, and this kind of becomes a stumbling block for those of the first century, but it becomes a stumbling block for us as well. You know, this idea of true altruism, true love, true agape, no strings attached, sacrificial, creator of the universe, giving himself 
freely for humanity. There's, there's a level of cynicism within the human condition that causes us to ask the question, what's the catch? Or, or that can't be true. That can't be real. And Jesus becomes a stumbling block as he walks through this journey. And John records the words of Jesus in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Remember the word cosmos, the word world here is cosmos. And, and it means the set in order of things. It's, it's any worldview that has no room for the God of the scriptures. And there's this dichotomy kind of being developed here. Jesus' followers will lament in this moment, but the world, the set in order of things, the, the ordered system of the world is going to rejoice at the death of God. Now, does that sound kind of familiar? Does, does that sound like maybe a moment that we live in? You know, we live in a society today where the world in some ways rejoices at the idea coined by Nietzsche, uh, the death of God. You know, a, a place and a cultural moment where the ways of the Judeo-Christian uh, belief live in kind of an upside-down ethic today. Many of the ways of Scripture are now considered to be immoral and unethical. And so we live in a time where the world is at enmity against the teachings of Jesus and the ways of Christ. And so we have to ask the question, what is our response? What is our response at, quote-unquote, the death of God within our society. You know, do we war against the culture? Uh, do we pick up the sword? Do we demand social reform at the highest levels of government? Lead a revolution <laughs> against, you know, what we esteem to be the persecution around us? And I just... I just don't see it though. As I look to scripture, there's days, friends, where I'm like, oh, I'd love, I'd love for scripture to be able to justify that kind of response because, you know, we're all human. Sometimes we get riled up and, and we want to respond and we want to um, stand up. And, but as I look at scripture, as I read scripture, as I study the life of Jesus, I just can't justify that kind of response. I just can't. It's just not there. Instead, we're called to this kind of painful journey of holding tight to the joy, this eternal perspective set before us, the promises of God, picking up our crosses daily and declaring in a loud voice, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. You know, Jesus had every opportunity to become that kind of geopolitical social reform messiah. He had every opportunity to do that. But instead, he served all of humanity through the giving of his life. He sacrificed himself. He subjugated himself to humanity, to his very creation. And the eternal outcome was greater than the temporary regime change of the first century. It was just so much greater because he had an eternal perspective. He had an eternal mission. And that's the mission that you and I are a part of. Today, kind of more than ever in our faith, it's going to cost us. You know, this world, this ordered system of the world is going to revile you more and more from here on out. And I believe that, that Jesus' words for Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane are for us today. I, I feel like they're prophetic for us today as the church. 
You know, Peter in the garden, when they came to arrest Jesus, he pulled out a sword and he cut off the ear. He took a swing. He wasn't very good with it, apparently. And he took a swing and he cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And so in this moment, in John 18, 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, don't get me wrong. The day of the sword is coming. But here's the, here's the deal, friends. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming. The day of the sword is coming. But it's going to be Jesus wielding the sword, not you and I. But in the meantime, may we see and experience the grace to drink of the cup that the Father is giving our generation. And to do it in a way that sees us loving and serving our enemies just as Christ did. I pray that we just be encouraged by the words of Paul to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 to 18. For this light momentary affliction. Now, Paul, Paul went through the ringer. Paul ultimately was martyred for his faith. But here's what's so interesting. He refers to these things as his light, this light momentary affliction. Why can he say that? Because he had an eternal perspective. Because what he was going through, he was able to put in the right light. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Barclay writes, The joy the world gives is at the mercy of the world. The joy which Christ gives is independent of anything the world can do. I love this idea. An eternal perspective. In verse 25 of John 16, he goes on, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. I absolutely love this moment in John. It's here that we see such a beautiful kind of intimate picture of God the Father. It's, it's here that our preconceptions of who God is are torn down, and we're left with a Father who loves His children. Have you, have you ever fallen for that kind of idea of God where Jesus is kind of the good cop and the Father God is kind of the bad cop. You know, the approachable Jesus and the unapproachable Father. And it's such a misconception. And here Jesus is kind of tearing down this idea and he's revealing God. Barclay writes of this moment, Then Jesus says something we must always remember. His disciples can approach God directly because God loves them. He does not need to take their requests to God they can take their own. Here is the final proof of something which must never be forgotten. Often we tend to think in terms of an angry God and a gentle Jesus. What Jesus did is presented in a way which seems to mean that, you know, he changed the attitude of God to men and women. 
and made him a God of love instead of a God of judgment. But here Jesus is saying, you can go to God because he loves you. And he's saying that before the cross, he did not die to change God into love. He died to tell us that God is love. He came not because God so hated the world, but because God so loved the world. Jesus brought to all people the love of God. You know, Jesus was not kind of this weird new manifestation of love. Jesus came to reveal the deep love the Father has towards humanity. You know, every once in a while, earthly fathers can get it right. You know what I mean? Um, I had a moment in my life with my earthly father, my dad, uh, where I had a bad day. I had a bad day. I did some things that I wasn't proud of. Um, it kind of really messed me up. I ended up not going to work. And through a whole set of circumstances, I finally late at night that night, uh, ended up going home and having to face the music with my parents. And I was so, you know, I had this idea of what was going to happen. I had this idea of judgment and wrath and consequences upon consequences. You know, this idea of just the fear of going and facing the consequences, facing your parents. And yet in that moment, my dad in particular kind of saw my repentant and contrite heart. He kind of saw that I was really struggling with this moment and this thing. And, and instead of meeting me with wrath like, and anger, he met me with this empathy and this understanding and this love. And for me, it was kind of, it changed kind of the dynamic of our relationship. And for some of you, you have perhaps this, this picture of a very severe kind of God where you fear even praying, you fear coming to church, you fear exploring faith, you, you fear opening your Bible, you, you, you don't even want to um, acknowledge his existence because some part of you fears that he's just a severe, judgmental, angry God. And Jesus is trying to reveal that God is love and that God loves you. You know, he says to his disciples, and I believe he really, he says it to you too. The father himself loves you. Not just me. I'm revealing. I'm, I'm a representation of the love that God already has for you. Verse 29, his disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it is come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You know, Jesus kind of ends this moment with a description of what is to come. And, and, but it doesn't kind of seem like he's holding this over the disciples' heads. You know, the scattering of the disciples. Um, he's not really holding it against them. He's kind of simply offering this moment of teaching as something that they can look back on when they've had this uh, revelation of Jesus and this infilling of the Spirit. And they look back on this and he's kind of re reiterating kind of the sentiment that, that we... All of us need to have, I believe that what Jesus is saying here for the church of the Western world today in the 21st century, we really need to catch this. 
in the world, you will have tribulation. You will have some translations say trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Take heart. This is the eternal perspective. In this moment, I can't kind of help but think about Stephen, the very first martyr of the church. And I want to read this, and I want you to just consider this. As you consider the eternal perspective, as you consider facing head-on the pain and the suffering of this world, um, in, in Acts 7, verses 54 to 60, now, when they heard these things, the Jewish um, leaders of the time and, the, and this crowd, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said these things, he fell asleep. Stephen in this moment had an eternal perspective. Stephen in this moment had this, had this ability to see beyond his suffering, to see even beyond his death, that this was not the end. And as he's even being stoned, instead of you know, complaining, instead of uh, <laughs> rising up on his rights and his freedoms and all the things, Stephen has this moment where he looks around at his enemies, the very enemies that are murdering him, and he says, Lord, forgive them. Don't hold these sins against them. And it's the eternal perspective, the joy set before, this vision of the glory of God and a deep belief in the overcoming power of Jesus that will see us through to that day. When we meet Jesus face to face, when we walk into that eternal reality as he makes a new heaven and a new earth. But until then, that is our strength. Until then, no matter what we face in this world, there's always hope because our hope is not found here and now. Our hope is found in what Jesus has already done and what he's bringing to this world. So Lord, we pray as we take a moment to consider these things, as we look at life, as we look at the seasons of life, Lord, we thank you for the good times. We thank you, Lord, for those moments of comfort, those moments of celebration and, and joy and, and all that stuff. But Lord, we also understand that this world has a way of turning things into a broken state and a broken way. And so, Lord, when those things happen, Lord, when we have to face the hardships of this world, Lord, would you cause us to have an eternal perspective, to see Everything that we do in light of eternity, in light of Jesus, and the work of Christ upon the cross. Lord, we thank you that you empower us, that your grace is sufficient for us. And so, Lord, as we walk out in this life, Lord, would you continue to keep an eternal perspective right at the forefront of our gaze. Give us a revelation of the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, thank you so much for joining us. Just stay tuned for a couple announcements, and we will see you next week.
Well, thank you so much, Pastor Lucas. We really appreciate you walking us through the word this morning. Well, friends, uh, if you want to continue to dig, dig deeper into God's word, we would invite you to Evangel Academy. It's happening tonight. Uh, it's our fourth and final installment about Pauline studies. We're going to be looking at some special issues in Paul as we have a little bit of a concentrated uh, discussion and learning around God's word. And so we would invite you here at the church, 6.30 p.m. If you haven't made it to the other ones, don't worry. Uh, we would still love to have you here. It's going to be a great time of discussion and just going deep in God's word together. So we want to see you there. And then if you want to join us for Grow Track 101, it is happening right after our 10 a.m. service. And so we would love to see you there. Uh, we're going to be jumping into 101. It's who we are as a church. You get to learn some of our vision, our mission, our values, uh, a little bit about our staff and the history of our church to kind of see where God has taken us and where we believe that God is bringing us. And so we would love to see you there right after service about 11 30 11 45 we would love to see you there and then finally we so appreciate your partnership in giving and everything that we do is done by uh, generous people who partner uh, with god's church and so if you want to be part of that partnership uh, we would encourage you to go to myevangel.church forward slash give to find all the ways that you can do that well friends thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you again soon